And now, Manufacturing Matters, with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and can you believe it? This is episode 10 of Manufacturing Matters. I, I can't call it a new series anymore. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host for this series on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm bringing my career in economics and my 15 years of experience with manufacturing research and with talking to manufacturing executives. I'm bringing those uh, things to this show to give the world a better and deeper understanding of America's crucial factory sector. We're going to continue to look at the big headlines of the day, both economically and politically. They matter a great deal to U.S. manufacturing performance. But as I say every week, we're going to go beneath the headlines and we're going to look at structural changes in this very dynamic time for the manufacturing sector. And the key word here is new, new market, new technology, new economic thinking. And we're going to tell you how each of these is going to lead to a new manufacturing story. As I've always said, my guests are going to be the best in their fields. We're going to have top economists, top scientists, prolific authors to discuss the critical manufacturing issues of the day. I'm sure that all of you will agree that U.S. manufacturing deserves no less. Today's episode is called The Complexity Technological Change. We can't get away from technological change. We will have many more episodes about it. It is fundamental to understanding modern manufacturing. But too often when we talk about technological change, we talk about it in very 30,000-foot abstract levels. Today, we're going to make things a little more complex, not because it's fun, but because the life of the modern manufacturing executive is complex. It is very technologically and geopolitically turbulent time. We're going to ask two questions in doing so. What is the relationship between innovation, between technological change and long-term innovation? There's a word you hear a lot, innovation. Many manufacturing CEOs will tell you that they live and die by it, so we need to explore it. Second question, what is the relationship between technological change and business investment? If you saw a picture of the two of them, they look alike. It's putting different kinds of machines into manufacturing production processes, but really, they're very different. Business investment is short-term. It facilitates current growth. We do more of it when we think things are strong and they're going to stay strong. I want to do that because I want my company to capture the strength of current market. Technological change is machines too, but it's very different. It's changing the way I do things for the long term. Will technological change affect business investment? That's an important business question because so many U.S. producers, they are producers of business equipment. I could not have a better guess for answering, answering these puzzling questions than Jeremy Leonard. Jeremy is known in the United States. He is known in Canada. He is known in Europe. And he is known for to, we published an award-winning paper, I don't mind saying, in 2007 on manufacturing innovation. Jeremy is currently responsible for overseeing the work of the industry for, forecasting team 
and managing the operation and output of Oxford Economics 77 countries, country, 100 sector global industry model, as well as related consultancy work. His specific areas of expertise include automotive aerospace and industrial electrical equipment. He has a big bag of intellectual capital. He has thought and written about competitiveness, offshoring and reshoring, commodity price modeling, and applied economic research on sectors ranging from biotech to heavy manufacturing to telecom. In addition to numerous recurring bespoke sales and output forecasts for industries as diverse as machine tools and consumer packaging, recent consulting assignments for Jeremy have included the drivers of competitiveness in the chemical sector, forward-looking analyses of high-growth sectors across a range of emerging economies, and the ways in which digital technologies are transforming economic activity across manufacturing and service sectors. You'd be very hard-pressed to find an economist with that kind of intellectual resume. Prior to joining Oxford Economics, Jeremy ran his own consulting firm based in Montreal, Canada, providing a variety of economic analysis and forecasting services related to commodity prices, competitiveness, and the Canadian and U.S. economic outlook for the Washington, D.C.-based Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation, an organization that should be familiar to listeners of this podcast as I spent 15 years there. He also served as Economic Research Director for the Montreal-based Institute for Research on Public Policy. Jeremy was born and raised in Washington, D.C. He was educated at the University of Pennsylvania and McGill University, where he received his M.A. in Economics, summa cum laude. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Cliff. It's good to talk to you again. You and I have thought about innovation, and you have spent a large uh, part of your career thinking about the many things that swirl around innovation. And, you know, everybody knows it's a much-used term, and it's a much-used term both in economics and business. But especially in the manufacturing sector, its meaning has not changed but so, so much has broadened over time. It's not just about new and better products, as important as they are. It's about other things. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to, and you're absolutely right. In fact, I like to start, uh, when I think about a term, I like to go back to the dictionary. So I went to the Oxford Economic Dictionary, uh, the Oxford uh, Dictionary, and I read the definition for innovation. And it said, a change in in an established way of doing things, especially by introducing new methods, ideas, or products. And if you're interested, this word has actually existed since the 16th century, which I found interesting because that's around the time of Galileo and Leonardo da Vinci and really when this notion of science-based discovery began. And for anyone who's really interested, it comes from the Latin word innovare, uh, which means make into new. So it's all about something that's new. Now, I think it's important, the definition, because as you mentioned, it is much more than products. It's new methods, ideas, or products. Now, when we tend to think about innovation, we tend to think about technology and gadgets, you know, um, cell phones and computers, and this is all high technology and this is innovation. And that's absolutely right. 
Um, but innovation is much more than that. And I think what, I, what I'd like to speak about during this interview is other kinds of innovation, uh, such as process innovation. Um, if we think about process innovation, um, that's something that most people really never see because that could be a new idea on how to produce something. The product itself may be the same, but the way in which it's produced is different, which may mean lower costs of production. It may mean higher quality. And these are things that may not be seen, but in fact, as you and I well know, Cliff, in our research, that that process innovation is arguably as important or more important than the kinds of products and gadgets that we normally associate with, uh, with technology and innovation. So you're absolutely right that it is a, um, it's not just about new and better products. That's clearly a big part of it. But it's also just about ideas on how production is organized and how we can produce products of higher quality lower costs that ultimately benefit consumers. Well, let, let me put you into the C-suite of a, of a large multinational manufacturing company. To them, innovation is a form of investment. And the question, if they ask you, what is the return on this investment? Why is it a critical investment variable for my company? What would you tell them? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, it's a very multifaceted answer, and it really depends on what kind of innovation uh, you're talking about and, and what investments you're making to produce that innovation. So let's take the example of process innovation as, as a good example. So say you're a company that's thinking about changing your production techniques from an, a sort of assembly line type uh, approach to a, a more lean manufacturing sort of nodes of, uh, nodes of production. That would be an instance where probably the ultimate outcome would be that you would lower your costs and you would probably maintain or improve the quality of the product. So clearly what that would do uh, in the first instance, it would increase your profit margins uh, because your costs would go down and your revenues would stay the same or possibly increase. And the other thing is that the quality of your product will give you an edge in the marketplace, and you may well gain market share. So clearly there's a, there's a, there's a linkage between uh, that kind of innovation and the bottom line. Um, and then, of course, with the new products, and this is a you can look to uh, particularly the if we think about uh, mobile phones, for instance, and think about the the resurgence of Apple uh, since the introduction of the iPhone, which has helped drive them to be one of the most valuable companies in the world. So clearly, if you if you focus your innovation efforts on developing new products, you will get things like first mover advantage. Uh, you may have a product that's not be able to be produced by anyone else in the marketplace, which will, will give you monopoly power over pricing, and again, that's going to impact your profits. So just as invest, traditional investment in machinery and equipment uh, and able, the ability to scale production can improve your bottom line and show a return, uh, innovation investment uh, shows the same kinds of characteristics. Well, we, outside of the C-suite and outside of the economics textbook, in the, business, in the business news, we often hear about research and development, R&D. And I think because it's, that term is always in the news, many think of R&D as being a comprehensive proxy for innovation investment. But this has proven to be faulty. The inclination these days in modern research is to discuss to discuss 
innovation ecosystems. Is that correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Cliff, and it's quite interesting because if we think back to the uh, the origins of the word innovation and the fact that uh, it's 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 coming into existence as a word was focused on kind of the scientific aspect of investment, that led to a very linear thinking about uh, how R&D is connected to innovation. And what I mean by that is we sort of have a paradigm where you have the scientists in universities and research institutes who are doing what we call basic research, uh, just doing experimenting for experimenting's sake, not caring too much about the commercial value. That leads to a body of research that then is used by businesses and others who are, apply those concepts to uh, various production techniques so that you get to the so-called applied research domain, which now we're looking more at how can we use this research in a more practical way. And then that leads to the last leg in the, in the uh, chain, which is the businesses who then take these uh, discoveries and then say, well, how can we actually design a prototype product that embeds the, this new knowledge or these new technologies. And, and that, was a, that was the way of thinking about innovation for quite a long time, this very linear path. And in fact, what we found is that that's actually not the right way to think about it, because if you look at uh, trying to correlate uh, sort of indicators of R&D spending with the outcomes of um, of innovation, which is, of course, higher profitability, it's actually very difficult to establish those uh, correlations. And what we have discovered is that because innovation isn't just about science, it's actually about ideas. And ideas can spring up from anywhere, as we know. Um, and many innovations are actually non-scientific and do arise from uh, other sources. I can give you an example, and it's one that I came to appreciate. I work in an open office environment. Um, and for a long time, I worked in a closed office. And what I've discovered is that an open office environment is very conducive to the exchange of ideas and knowledge and information. I actually find that I've become more productive in my work uh, being in an open office environment. Now, there's no scientist who was working in a lab who all of a sudden discovered that open office environment actually leads to better exchange of information and higher quality products. But in fact, certainly from my own experience, uh, that has been a very important innovation in my, in my own work. So, so you're absolutely right that it's about innovation ecosystems. It's about, it's about having situations where there can be open exchange of all kinds of ideas. And this is closely related to the idea of clusters, uh, where you have a, a geographical grouping of both universities, businesses, um, and uh, very highly educated people. And what that leads to is uh, better productivity, more knowledge, and more innovation. And it's not necessarily coming from the scientific labs. Of course, some of it will. But some of it is coming from simply the fact that there are many uh, educated people who have different experiences who can exchange ideas. And this comes back to the fundamental definition of innovation, which has to do with new ideas. Let's get down for, to a few specifics for a moment. In recent years, we have seen innovation in the factories, the move toward digital factories. But process changes are now occurring in the manufacturing supply chain. Can you explain one or two of these? Yeah, sure. 
And uh, I think uh, I think the examples I want to use are um, uh, first of all uh, enterprise resource planning, which which at its uh, outset uh, when it was introduced in the early 1990s was really about uh, improving the coordination and process management within a single firm. But with the advent of communication technologies and sharing of information over the internet, it's actually now possible for the customers and suppliers of a particular company to be able to know what things like inventory levels um, are at their at their supplier or at their customer. And this real-time monitoring of inventories has really enabled the kinds of just-in-time um, uh, paradigms that are present in the automotive sector. And what that's done is that's drastically reduced the amount of inventories that need to be held throughout the supply chain. And of course, what that means is lower cost, uh, better cash flow, and ultimately higher profitability and better responsiveness to the consumer. So, so that's one example. Um, the other example really has to do with freight and logistics, because if we think about supply chains, a huge part of that is transporting components from one point to the other. And I actually have a close friend who's the CEO of a logistics firm, and it's just amazing the technologies that are now available for optimizing uh, transport routes. So, of course, we, we all know about RFID so that you can track particular packages that are moving from one point to another in real time. But with the integration of Google Maps with enterprise resource planning systems, it's now possible to ensure that truck loads, trucks are fully loaded uh, for all trips, uh, that load factors are maximized, and we can even now drill down to traffic conditions. And what that means is that even in a just-in-time world, um, we can actually see incremental improvements in the amount of time required to move components from one point to the other, and that has really revolutionized um, supply chains, and it's quite frankly allowed um, manufacturers to focus more of their sourcing on the actual cost of the component because the, the transport costs and the logistics costs have come down uh, very substantially. Now, here's a question that is speculative, but also very critical for this discussion. It's 20 years from now, and I'm an economist working at the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the United States wanting to accurately measure business investment. We know that such changes that you um, very well described are fundamentally changing the way that supply chains work. In the manufacturing sector, how is this going to change the composition and intensity of capital investment? What am I going to see as an uh, analyst at BEA 20 years from now versus what I may see today for capital investment in manufacturing? Yeah, that's a really good question, Cliff, and we're actually we're thinking about that, that very question because one of the things that we've uh, seen when we look at the, the, uh, the breakdown, the components of uh, what businesses are investing in, we see an interesting pattern. And what we're seeing is that we're seeing a, 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 an increase in the share of so-called intangible investments. So this is things like, this is things like software, know-how, intellectual property, the kinds of things that are conducive to innovation itself. And what we see is that over the past 10 or 15 years, the share of that investment has slowly been creeping upward. 
Um, and of course, this is coming at the expense of other categories. We're seeing that investment in structures, which is essentially factories and warehouses and the, and the buildings required to produce things, is staying fairly stable over time. And so what we're seeing is a, a substitution effect between um, the kind of traditional investment that we think of as machines and equipment and the things that are actually making things, and it's more towards um, the intangibles uh, that uh, that I, I that in our initial view is related to this uh, wanting to uh, streamline supply chains, uh, intellectual property innovation. So I have to admit that we're, we we haven't come to a conclusion on this, but I think it, it comes to your point that um, if we think about innovation and the need to continually streamline supply chains to maintain that competitive edge, that companies are. Uh, cognizant of that, and certainly, if we look at the at the investment data over the last five to ten years, that they're changing their investment behavior uh, to reflect that. And so, I think that that is a structural pattern that's happening, and I would expect that to continue over the next uh, five to ten years. And perhaps we'll have another uh, interview, uh, maybe in a year's time, and I can tell you more about what we actually find. But certainly, that's our initial. Uh, our initial conclusions on, in terms of the kinds of investment. Let's look at, let me ask almost the same question, only taking out the time parameter. There has been an improvement in recent quarters in the growth of business equipment spending in the United States. But although that's after years of relative weakness. Now let's talk about this kind of long-term sluggishness that we have seen in business equipment spending. Is it plausible that to some extent there has been and is ongoing a substitution from short-term capital investment that tends to be cyclical to longer-term technological change? I mean, companies, even large ones, have limited resources for investment. So are they moving away some of those resources from short-term CapEx the longer-term technological change, is that explain some of what we're seeing right now? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, the, um, the, uh, I think that the cyclical effect uh, is clearly uh, uh, has more impact on machinery and equipment because this is, these are uh, investments that often involve um, very large projects, um, and require, in many cases, borrowings or are sensitive to credit conditions. So, so I think clearly uh, there is a cyclical effect there on the on the equipment side. Um, in terms of the in terms of the substitution, um, I think um, I mean it, it's hard to say to be honest with you, Cliff, because uh, we see that in the data over the past, let's say, five years. Um, now, some of this may be due to the fact that uh, the um, the economic growth outlook over the past five years in the U.S. has been, uh, let's say, less than perhaps uh, one would have expected based on prior experience, so, so that businesses are kind of dialing back their uh, equipment investment in terms of tactical decisions about production over the next two to five years. But I think if we look more structurally, if we think about the U.S., what is the U.S. competitive position going to look like going forward, I think, again, I come back to my point that companies are realizing that because of the structure of cost production, structure of wages, 
uh, and a host of other factors that it's going to be critical uh, to continue uh, to invest in these long-term um, investments that will impact uh, technological change. Now, part of this is intellectual, uh, sorry, uh, the, um, the intangible capital that I referred to. Part of it is indeed uh, business research and development, which, although it's not the complete picture of innovation, it's certainly an important contributing factor. So, so I think um, in the in the in the near term, we have seen this kind of substitution, um, but um, there are reasons to believe that there could potentially be complementarities uh, between this kind of longer-term investment in um, in intangible capital and increased equipment investment spending. And the reason I say that is because by becoming more competitive, uh, U.S. manufacturing would see a stronger growth path and. A stronger growth path will require more investment in productive equipment. That's, that's an interesting segue into my next question. It's important to think about the employment implications of all of this. Capital investment is often discussed as being at least one foundation for healthy job growth. In, in this time of process, technology disru- disruption in manufacturing, Again, it's speculation, but do you think that the link between capital investment and manufacturing job growth has been, is, or will be somewhat compromised? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and and I we we've been doing work on this as well, and I and I think the I think the short answer there, Cliff, is that I there are risks to uh, to employment growth uh, in the kind of future we're looking at. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the process innovation and the ways of production are going to involve a lot more automation in the United States and, quite frankly, in most of the developed world. Uh, because I think all of the listeners uh, on this show will know that you know the U.S. and other developed countries enjoy uh, very high manufacturing wages, which is one of the reasons why the manufacturing sector is so attractive as a career. But at the same time, it puts competitive pressure as, as we have countries like China and South Korea who are rapidly uh, gaining expertise in advanced manufacturing technologies. And so essentially the way that uh, the U.S. and other developed countries will be able to stay one step ahead of the competition is by uh, incorporating more automation in what is produced. And we've actually got a report, Cliff, coming out. It'll be publicly available from Oxford Economics website that looks precisely at this question, and our preliminary estimates suggest that by 2030, up to 30 million manufacturing jobs worldwide could be at risk from this kind of robotics and automation uh, trend that we see happening. And most of these job losses, not surprisingly, are going to be happening in the developed world. Now, that being said, uh, I come back to my point about to the extent that Uh, this investment in automation and process innovation that can keep the U.S. manufacturing sector competitive are put into place, what it means is that the outlook for manufacturing jobs will be better than perhaps it might have been. But I think it still does mean that uh, if we look at manufacturing employment as a share of the total, for instance, that we're likely to see a continuing very slow decline in that share. Um, Quite frankly, the same kind of decline as we've been seeing uh, over the last 10 to 20 years. Final question, Jeremy. 
while things picked up in somewhat in 2017 and 2018, U.S. manufacturing growth has certainly been slow in recent years, partially a hangover from the Great Recession, partially a result of global issues. Do you think that the current wave of technological change and disruption, once it fully plays itself out and we reach some sort of long-term technological equilibrium, will result in stronger manufacturing performance? Are we going to see, after all this reaches a new resting point, are we going to see a stronger manufacturing sector in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I actually I think we will. Um, I think I'm fairly optimistic about this, and and I say that in the context of manufacturing's share of the economy, which has which has trended downwards. I'm now talking about actual production rather than employment, and production uh, trended downward for quite some time, and we've actually seen a stabilization of that uh, sort of manufacturing share of GDP ratio. And my view of that is that it actually is probably likely to stay stable, uh, possibly increase very marginally. But what's quite interesting is the sectoral mix of that overall manufacturing stability is probably going to change pretty dramatically. And it comes down to the points about uh, increasing automation and bringing this intangible capital to improve the quality and uh, technological content of products actually produced. And what, what I mean by that is that if we think about sectors for which supply chains are long and complex, uh, so the, the machine tool sector and a lot of specialized machinery falls into this category. Uh, it involves components that need to be made to very high levels of precision, that need to be assembled, uh, and that need to be uh, installed on, uh, on factory assembly lines. And interestingly, the developed world, uh, the U.S. Uh, in front, is, are, is the leader uh, in these kinds of activities. So if we think about sectors like uh, specialized machinery, machine tools, uh, precision instruments, so things that monitor quality, uh, things that measure, do measurements, uh, testing and quality control, these kinds of sectors will do very, very well in the U.S. and elsewhere in the developed world, and we're very bullish on these sectors. If we think about some other sectors where proximity to market, for instance, is very important, like the automotive sector, um, clearly for the uh, U.S. and North American market, uh, U.S. car producers are in very uh, strong position. Um, in notwithstanding some of the political debate, the fact remains is that foreign um, manufacturers of cars uh, are very uh, enthusiastic about locating production in the United States precisely because of the large market and the importance in automotive of being close to market, understanding your customer, and more importantly, being able to deliver the product in a timely manner is very important. So I would say that the automotive sector, to the extent that demand in North America is increasing, will be quite positive, but the fact does remain that the highest growth for automotive demand is in the Asia-Pacific region. And so clearly companies will have an incentive to locate there for the reasons I just said. 
And then if we think about some of the sectors where supply chains are less complex, and here I have in mind the chemical sector, where clearly energy costs are very important because energy, uh, oil and gas are both a feedstock to chemicals, but and also producing chemicals is very energy intensive. So here, the U.S. actually has a very strong advantage with the very low natural gas prices. But at the same time, <clears throat> um, the because the innovations in terms of uh, supply chain coordination are not so important in upstream sectors like chemicals, um, that I would say is a mixed bag. So we have some advantages, but the kinds of innovations we've been talking about here um, won't necessarily be as strong. So that's a long-winded way of saying that uh, broadly speaking, um, I'm very optimistic for manufacturing. We think that the growth rate of manufacturing will uh, equal or exceed the growth rate of the overall economy for the foreseeable future. Uh, but of course, it's all dependent on precisely what we've been talking about for the last half an hour, which is companies' ability to invest in the innovations uh, that will continue to allow them to reduce their costs, push uh, new products, and push the quality of those products. Jeremy Leonard, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, it's always nice to talk to you, Cliff. Pleasure to do it. We will continue, listeners, to talk about technological change. It's fundamental. And we will continue to ask complex questions, not just for complexity itself, but because that's part of the reality of the manufacturing executive in today's economy. Next week, however, we will put the all-important automotive sector under the microscope, and my guest will be the distinguished auto analyst, Haig Stoddard. Until then, this is Cliff Walvin reminding you that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.